And uh, it's going to be a joyful time, I think, as we navigate through these wonderful verses together in this really incredible book. So if you're new with us, our, our approach to teaching the scripture week in and week out is we, we typically find a book, uh, and usually kind of during the school year, we've, we're in the New Testament, and we just work our way through that book verse by verse. And when we start a new book, we'll do what we are this morning, and that is try to study the whole thing at once. So if this is your first time with us, uh, find the seat belt that's located in the, in the seat in, around you and buckle up uh, because we're going to walk through the whole thing together just to try to get our, our mind around it and the main theme. And then we'll go back beginning next week and we'll just walk our way through this book together as the Lord directs us each and every week. And I think you'll find it to be a great encouragement to you. We need to think about what it is that a well taught church, living in an increasingly Christ-opposing culture, needs to set their focus. Upon what do we set our focus if we're a church that is well-taught in the word and yet we find ourselves in the midst of a culture that is increasingly opposing what we believe in? Do we need to then dig deeper perhaps theologically? And dig into the granular nuances of all that we could learn about theology? Maybe. Learning never hurts. Learning more never really hurts. Refining your theological understanding is never a bad thing to do. It can be significantly helpful to us. Or maybe we would think that a well-taught church in a church-opposing culture needs to become better acquainted with maybe the political and social emphases of the day. And maybe what we need to do is present a more compelling argument to the culture to hear something more logical, more rational. All of the the logical, rational arguments that we could bring out to uphold a biblical worldview and dismantle all the epistemological fallacies and factual disadvantages of an unbiblical system of thought, that might be helpful for us. In fact, I think it can be helpful to show all of the downsides of the prevailing worldviews around us that are opposed to what we actually believe in the Scripture. So maybe we need to give ourselves more to the, the, the social fears, spheres of life. Maybe engage the political structures. It's a good question for us. Because we are in a culture that is increasingly opposing Christ and the Word. And I think Summit Woods Baptist Church is a fairly well-taught church. There's one, at least. (laughs) I mean, we we give ourselves to teaching the word of God day in and day out. We're we're not by any means perfect in this at all, but, but I love seeing the hunger in our congregation for God's word. I love it. Uh, there's people in the nine o'clock hour just, we're studying theology, we're studying books of the Bible, studying the texts of scripture. Uh, you, you'll just see that throughout the week. There are people meeting together to study the word, pray together. It's wonderful. I, I think we live here, our Christian life, in a church that's well taught in the word. And we're in a culture that's increasingly growing in opposition to that teaching. So what do we give our attention to? What should we do? What should we emphasize? Now, I think there are individuals within our church, perhaps, and certainly within our our world, Christians, individual Christians, who may take the gifts and abilities that they have and the providential opportunities that are in front of them, and they might engage in the, the political world. I think it would be good if God raised up some from our midst and sent them to places like Jeff City or to Washington, D.C., and they could well represent Christ there. There could be many of you that engage in the, the, the spheres of your world in the public school system and you're bringing Christ there or in your, your secular jobs and you're breathing out the atmosphere of the gospel in those places and you need to do that. But what I w- really want us to think about is what do we do as a congregation as a whole? Not just individuals and what you specifically and personally will do in the culture What do we do as a church? What do we emphasize, especially if we're a well-taught congregation, in an increasingly 
Christless culture, what should we emphasize? I think 1 Thessalonians is the book for us. I think it is. It will help us answer that question. It will help us focus our attention on what I believe is spiritually most significant for us in our emphasis as a congregation. Now, my guess is that when you heard, many of you heard that the next book, you know, we just finished Hebrews and the prevailing question coming up out in the foyer after every series, you know, sermon I gave back in November and some of December is, what's next? And I'd say First Thessalonians and I'd see that big grin go, huh. It's almost like you turned your head a little bit and thought, well, I know it's in the Bible, so it's important, but... It's not really the book that I'm, I'm most hungry for. And that's sad. Because this is a really, really rich book. And, and you're, going to, you're going to experience that. We'll all experience it together. But stereotypically, it's, it's probably one of Paul's most neglected letters. It doesn't have the theologically Himalayan feel of Romans. It lacks the extravagant controversies of 1 Corinthians. It doesn't even really have the mysterious allure of the book of Revelation, which some of you are saying, that's the one we really want to hear. The rumor was out that you were going to do that one. Well, Lord willing, one of these days. Of all of Paul's letters, though, the Thessalonian correspondence is often less studied. At a glance, you read through the book and you say, well, this is a very personal letter. It it almost seems irrelevant to us. It's so personal to this ancient church in Thessalonica. I know there's probably some relevance there. And some who really love to dig into the depths of theology will look at this book and they'll say, this really lacks deep, thoroughgoing sections of theological heights and depths. It seems to be running along the surface of practicalities. And so First Thessalonians just doesn't seem to have the alluring appeal that some of the more meaty books of Paul possess, we might think. But I think First Thessalonians is precisely what will help us focus on congregationally what is most significant for us to think about. It's not rocket science. These emphases are not particularly new ground for any of you who have been around the church, any church really, for any length of time. This is not going to be new for you. But I think you're going to find these emphases to be quite profound in their simplicity. You're going to find them richly powerful in their personal application. Because this book is written to a specific congregation in the midst of a culturally ripe era, ripe with opposition toward the gospel. Verse 1, that we read just a moment ago tells us from whom the letter comes from and to whom it is written Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace that's a typical Pauline introduction we know likely who this man is Paul he is the former Jewish scholar And one of the, before Christianity, most fervent persecutors of Christians who was actually radically converted to Christianity while he was on a missions trip to destroy Christians. And now he is the great apostle. After he came to faith in Christ, he is the great apostle, the one given the unique privilege and responsibility to be an actual official representative of the voice of Jesus. He is a revealer of the message from the New Testament in the Messiah. He is a tool used by God to bring the gospel to parts of the world that had never heard of saving faith in Jesus Christ. He lays the foundation of what we have in the New Testament so that we build on top of these words. He's the primary author of this book. Silvanus is another name for Silas, a man chosen by the Apostle Paul to assist him When Paul began what we typically refer to as the second missionary trip, there was a church, the Antioch church, that called out the Apostle Paul and a number of others, Barnabas and others, and sent them out initially on a first trip out into parts of the the world in the first century that had never heard the gospel, and they began to plant churches. 
After that first trip, they come back to Antioch. They share what God has done in those, in those forays out into the known world. And then they, they make their way back out. But if you remember in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas were going to make their way back out. But Barnabas and Paul had a bit of a falling out. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, but John Mark had abandoned them in the first trip. And Paul said, no, I don't think he's the right guy for the job. There was such a dispute that they, they decided to part ways. You remember that? If you've read through the book of Acts, you'll remember some of that, perhaps. So Paul picked a, a gentleman named Silas. That's this man, Silvanus. And these two went back out on the second journey to revisit some of those churches that they had established, but established new churches in other places. So Silvanus is accompanying him here. He was actually known as a leader, likely an elder, in the church in Antioch, and he was actually even called in Acts 15, verse 32, he was called a prophet. Timothy is a name that is oftentimes associated with the Apostle Paul a young disciple of Jesus who Paul met on the first leg of that second missionary journey that he was on with Silas. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. Timothy's mother and grandmother, according to 2 Timothy 1.5 and 2 Timothy 3.14 and 15, his mother and grandmother were Jews who faithfully taught him the Old Testament scriptures. His father was likely an unconverted Gentile. And Timothy was likely present when Paul had first come to the cities of Lystra and Derby, long before this second missionary journey, when Paul had come to the cities of Lystra and Derby, it's recorded in Acts chapter 14, he was preaching the gospel, seeing a church birthed in that area, but immediately there was opposition to the apostle Paul in Acts 14 to the point in which they stoned Paul and most believed that he was dead. And in an amazing supernatural act of God's grace, Paul, who everyone thought was dead after being stoned, and and you can imagine, when, when someone's being stoned, they don't stop throwing the rocks until the person is lifeless. The text tells us that Paul just simply got up and walked off. That was in Lystra and Derby. When Paul comes back to that area on his second missionary journey, he meets a guy named Timothy who's already a well-founded disciple. There are some indications in the book of 2 Timothy that it is possible that Timothy was actually present when Paul was stoned because he was a witness to the afflictions of the apostle Paul. And it could very well be, we don't know for sure, but it could very well be that Timothy watched all of that happen in Lystra and Derby and was converted under the ministry of the apostle Paul and had become a very mature believer in the church. So much so that Acts 16 says he was well thought of, he was well spoken of by all the brethren in the church. Paul meets him in Acts 16 and says, I want him to go with me. That's what great leaders do, right? They, they find some of the best guys in the church and they take them and they say, we, got, we need him. We need the best to go out with us to plant these new churches. So Timothy goes with him. Timothy becomes the right hand of the apostle Paul. He, the, Paul will say of Timothy, I don't have anyone that is as dear to me as this young man is. And at the end of the apostle's life, he's appealing to Timothy to come to him. That's who he wants to be with him in the final hours of his life. This is a great missionary team, Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, if you keep reading in the narrative in the book of Acts, right after after Paul goes to this area in in Lystra and Derby in Acts chapter 16, you keep reading and he makes his way off to the city of Philippi. Now Philippi is up in northeastern Greece. It's close to the Aegean Sea, up in the northeastern part, the far reaches of the northeastern part of Greece. Philippi was a very poor city. And it was there in Philippi that Paul and Silvanus and likely Timothy began preaching the gospel. And again, opposition arose and they were jailed. And you'll remember, while they're in jail, Paul and Silas are singing hymns. Do you remember that? They're singing hymns. And it was during that time that the jailer is actually converted. And you begin to see a small church established in the city of Philippi. 
They begin to move from that place and the very next place they go to is the city of Thessalonica. It's just west of Philippi, a hundred miles, about five days journey, but it's the capital city of what's known as Macedonia, which is all of northern Greece. And that's to whom Paul writes this letter, the church of the Thessalonians. Those who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great way to describe what a Christian is. It is someone who is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thessalonica, not only in the ancient world, but even up to this very day, is one of the most prominent cities in the area of Greece. It's the second most populous city in Greece even to this day. And it was founded in 315 BC. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going to a city today that still exists, that has been in existence since 315 BC? Anybody been to Thessalonica? There's a couple of you have. Don't be ashamed. You can say, yeah, I've been there. You've been to this great city. And it's still a great city in the area. It became the capital city. It was named by a particular Greek general under Alexander the Great named Cassander. And he actually named the city for his wife. And his wife happened to be the half-sister of Alexander the Great. That's what you do, isn't it, when you're a general and you want to stay in the good graces? Let me name a uh, city after your sister who I just married. When the city eventually came under Roman rule after the Greek era ended and it comes under Roman rule, it eventually becomes the capital city of the region in 146 B.C., And it was a very loyal city to Rome. So loyal was this city that they didn't have to pay any tribute or taxes to Rome. Matter of fact, there was so much wealth in the city that when the Romans took it over, they took so much wealth out of the city back to Rome and other parts that they guaranteed the city that they wouldn't have to pay tribute to Rome or taxes for a hundred years. That's how wealthy the city was. You remember perhaps a little bit about the story of Julius Caesar who was murdered by Brutus? Well, Thessalonica played a fairly prominent role in this area. When Brutus assassinated Julius Caesar and he began his campaign along with Cassius to secure his rule, he battled with Mark Antony and another man named Octavian. Octavian later became known as Augustus Caesar. In that battle, Thessalonica took the side of Mark Antony and Octavian. They were loyal to Mark Antony and to Octavian, so much so that there are coins that are found in the city. And the coins in the city of Thessalonica, on one side, it says Julius. And an inscription there and a picture or an inscription of Julius Caesar. And on the flip side is one of Octavian or Augustus Caesar. And on the section that's dedicated to Julius, it says at the bottom, God. They believed that the Caesars were God. You could even see it in their coinage. They were so loyal to the Caesar that they would inscribe on the coin that he was a God and Octavian and Julius Caesar were their patrons. So loyal that out of all of the cities in the ancient world, they enjoyed something that was very unique. They had their own local government. There were no Roman cohorts left in the city. They had their own local government to oversee all of their affairs. Paul even refers to that local government by name in Acts 17, verse 6 and 8. The city, by the time that Paul arrives there, is perhaps, it's hard to know, but perhaps somewhere around 200,000 people in population. That's, that's very extensive for an ancient first century city, 200,000 people. It was known for its sexually promiscuous and loose lifestyle, though perhaps not as infamous as Corinth. It was also known for its extravagant pagan system of religious idolatry, though perhaps not as infamous as Athens. They were known for a cult called Kabiris, Very little is known about the god Kabiris. It was the primary idol of the city. There's many coins that can be found in the city with some inscription, but it's very hard to tell. They're still excavating this city. It would be marvelous to know what you could learn about the culture if they could continue to excavate it. But built on top of it is the very extensive modern city of Thessaloniki and 
they don't really want to give up all that territory just to learn something from antiquity. But it was this city that Paul entered probably around AD 51. It's a very early time in the gospel expansion in the early church. I want you to remind yourself a little bit about what happened when Paul went into this city. So if you want to turn to Acts 17, I want us to read about it before we begin to dig into the book. This will give us some idea of what Paul is is writing to them. Acts chapter 17 is the record of him arriving at this capital city of Macedonia. They had just left Philippi and saw marvelous things happen in that in that wonderful city, and they march a hundred miles to the west, five days journey, and it says in verse seven, in chapter seventeen, verse one. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and it was the the habit of the apostle Paul that when he went into a new city, he started at the synagogue. He brought the the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Greek. He mentions that in Romans chapter one. That was his method of operation. You see it in verse 2, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, on three different Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This again is Paul's mode of operation. He goes into a synagogue, and he begins to dialogue. He begins to engage in reasoning, but not philosophical reasoning. He's actually going through the scriptures, And the scriptures he's going through likely are the Old Testament scriptures. You can imagine him going back to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 and reading through the suffering servant accounts and arguing of how it is that the Messiah had to suffer. And that's what he says in verse 3. He's explaining and he's giving evidence likely from the scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer. Now why is that important? Well, they had to hear, these Jewish people had to hear first that the Bible actually teaches in the Old Testament that the expected, awaited for Messiah had to suffer. And then he goes on to say, and Jesus was that Messiah. That's what it says in verse 3. He gave evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is that Messiah. And verse 4, some of them were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, that is, Greeks who had converted to Judaism. That's what a God-fearing Greek is, a Jew who, or a Greek who had converted over to Judaism. So there were some, and I take that to mean there were just some, not many, of the Jewish people who were persuaded But there was a large number of the Greeks who had converted to Judaism. They began following Paul, along with a number of leading women. And you have to understand in the ancient world, there were a number of very wealthy and influential women throughout the area who wielded a lot of political influence. And many of these leading women had come to faith in Christ in this initial foray into the city of Thessalonica. Verse 5. But the Jews becoming jealous. Jealous of what? Well, look who's being converted. Many of the God-fearing Greeks, the people who are making up the, the primary population of the synagogue, some of the Jews and leading powerful, influential women are now converting to Christ. That just rose up all kinds of jealousy within the Jewish population. And they took along some of the wicked men from the marketplace. And there was an agora in every major city. And if you've been to some of those ancient sites, you'll you'll note where the agora is. It's where all the little shops would be and where all the the commerce would be conducted. And so these jealous Jews went in, they began to spread some lies about the apostle Paul and his companions. And they formed a mob And they set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren, some of the Christians, before the city authorities. There's the reference, by the way, to the specific free government that this city possessed. They brought them before the city authorities, and they had wide-ranging authority in that time. They could do virtually anything that they wanted. 
And they were shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, which is pretty powerful, isn't it? The testimony of the Apostle Paul had preceded him into this city. And now people were in the city were beginning to follow his message. And the Jews knew there were other cities where we saw this happen. So we know what's going to happen to our influence here. So they try to indicate that these men are are not a help to the city of Thessalonica, but a threat. Verse 7 says, and even more, Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to, not the Jewish law, but to what? The decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Remember what I said about their coinage? Who did they believe Caesar to be? God. And who is Paul saying Jesus is? He is the ruling deity. He is king. So they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason, Jason had to pay them off. And the others, they released them. Just look at verse 10 for a moment so you see the aftermath of what happens with the Apostle Paul in Thessalonica. The brethren, that is the rest of the church, these newly converted people, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, just south, directly south of Thessalonica. Down to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, and and it begins again. We don't know exactly how long the Apostle Paul stayed in the city of Thessalonica. We have here that there were at least three Sabbaths that he was reasoning with them in the scriptures. But it is likely that Paul stayed a bit longer than just three weeks. He had been there long enough to establish a trade in the city. He was a tent maker and he began to employ that trade. In Philippians 4, it indicates that the church in Philippi, a hundred miles away, sent him a monetary gift to meet his needs while he was there. And as we read the the letter of 1 Thessalonians, you're going to find that he establishes a very deep and personal relationship with the church. He views himself like a father caring for his own children, he says in chapter 2, verse 11. He sees himself like a uh, the intimacy of a nursing mother with her baby, chapter 2, verse 7. And one of Paul's greatest concerns for this fledgling church was that with all this opposition, there's some people who are going to fall away. Back in 1 Thessalonians, you see that concern of his in chapter 3, verse 1. When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. So what happened is Paul went to Berea. He began to preach the gospel. And you remember the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, and they would listen to what Paul was, was teaching, and they would search the scriptures to see if these things were true. And they, a fledgling church developed there. And yet the Jews from Thessalonica heard about it, and they came down to Berea, ran Paul out of there. Paul runs as far south as Athens. And in Athens, you'll remember what happens. He's running around the agora of that place and, and he's seeing all of the idols. It disturbs his soul. He starts preaching about the resurrection. They grab him and take him up to Mars Hill just off the Parthenon. And there they put him under trial, as it were, and he preaches about God and Christ and the gospel. And only a few people, probably not even enough for him to see a church started, are converted, and he leaves Athens and goes down south, even further to the city of Corinth, where he stays for quite a while. It's probably from Corinth that he writes this. But he mentions that when we were left behind at Athens, and I was just going about the city, I had to send Timothy back, because I couldn't stand not knowing how you were doing. Out of all of the opposition and the trial and the murderous threats that were going on, I had to know how you were doing. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer. He says it again. Do you see the passion he has for this fledgling church? I can't stand it. 
I have to know how you're doing. When I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What is he afraid of? I'm afraid that the the affliction was so intense that you might have quit. That you might have thought it's more valuable to lay low or say nothing about Jesus and quit going to that church where all this affliction is found and just go back to the way we used to live. That's what opposition does to people. Is it really worth it? Is Jesus that valuable? And when it's intense and when it's growing in intensity and it's not popular and it's not cool and it's not acceptable to be known publicly as a Christian, a lot of people just want to keep their mouth shut. Or a lot of people will just say, you know what? This is not worth it. And Paul knows that. He'd seen enough of it. And his many journeys, he'd seen this all the time. And he couldn't stand it. Not as close as he was to this group of people. And he had to know about their faith. Thankfully, he got a good report. Verse 6 says in chapter 3, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and he's brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us. That means there he's, he's not so concerned that they were that they had just turned on him. But to turn on Paul was to reject the gospel. If you thought kindly of Paul, it meant that you probably hadn't left the gospel. You think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. So Paul wanted to write to them. Now that I know you haven't abandoned the faith, I spent time with you, giving you instruction, teaching you the things of Christ, and we'll get a glimpse into what he's taught them. And you'll find they're very well taught. I mean, they had Paul. You're pretty well taught if you get Paul. I was just reading this morning my own Bible reading about him staying all night, one night, preaching and Eutychus falls out of the window. You remember that? Dies because his sermon went so long. <laughs> he goes down and resurrects him from the dead and goes back up and speaks to them for a long time more. I know, Don't worry, I'm not doing that. I can't raise the dead, so uh, I... <laughs> I've got to end it sooner than he probably would have. I've been told if you're going to preach that long, you've got to be able to raise the dead. All right, so. So it's a well-taught church. And we know they're under all kinds of affliction. They don't want to abandon the gospel. So what does he tell them? I've got one shot to write them this letter. I want them to grow in their faith. What do I want them to emphasize? Paul tells them, I want you to emphasize something very specific. The message is simple. The message is straightforward. The focus that you need is simply to, I've put it in the phrase that you see on the screen, you need to grow in what you know. It's very simple. You need to grow in what you know. That's the primary emphasis of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I want you to see that. You say, well, when do we get to the first point? Oh, you know, sometime. We'll get there in a minute. Just hang on. You need to grow in what you know. And the reason I I say it and I phrase it that way is for a number of specific reasons. The word or the verb to know, oida in the Greek, is used 17 times in this book. I want you to see it with me. Chapter 1, verse 4, Paul knows, brethren, beloved by God, God's choice of you. Verse 5, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And notice the phrase, just as you what? No. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Verse 2, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, and here's the phrase again, as you No. Verse 5 of chapter 2, we never came with flattering speech. Here's the phrase again, as you know. Verse 9, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Verse 10, you are what? Witnesses, 
You know this. You're witnesses and so is God. Verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions for, here's the phrase again, you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Verse 4. Indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance we were going to suffer affliction and so it came to pass, as you know. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we get a glimpse. They've been well taught. They know a lot. You know what we've taught you. Chapter 5, verse 1. As to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written you. Why? Because you, verse 2, yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it? They know a lot. They know a lot. And he keeps appealing to what they know. You have a lot of knowledge. In chapter 4, verse 6, you see another indication of this. No man is to transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Notice this, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. We told, we talked to you about this. Verse 9, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You've already been taught. You're a well-taught church. You know a lot. So what do they need to do with what they no. We see in chapter 3, verse 8, the apostle's concern. We really live if you what? You stand firm in the Lord. Meaning, what are you going to do with what you know? I'm going to stand there on it. I'm not going to waver back and forth. Look at verse 10. Night and day we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete What is lacking in your faith? What does that mean? Well, they know a lot. Their faith is strong, but they're not perfect. There's still more to grow in. And he wants to get back there so he can complete what has not been completed. There's more to grow in. In fact, he actually says this explicitly in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction, you're well taught, as to how you ought to walk and please God as you actually do walk, what does he want for them? That you excel still more. What does that mean? Grow. Take what you know and grow in it. Grow in what you know. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. There it is again. Grow in what you know. That's the aim of this book. You know a lot. You're well taught. Grow in it. Grow more. You know what that... That's so instructive. Listen to it carefully. Grow in what you know. Don't... Don't shift the emphasis of your church. Don't change the emphasis of your living. You simply need to keep doing what you know to do. Emphasize the same things you have always been emphasizing, just more so. Go deeper in it. Become more practical with it. Be more intentional with it. Be more aggressive. Summit Woods, we don't need to change the emphasis. What helps us is not a new kind of creativity. It's not. We just need to keep doing the same things we've always been doing better and better 
and better and just grow in what we already know. Friends, there's a lot of churches today in our world. There's a lot of churches in our city. There's a lot of churches in our state. And the temptation in a world like ours that's growing in its hostility towards the gospel, the temptation is going to be to change something. To become less oppositional. To change something so that we're not quite so edgy. We don't need to do that. Just, just keep growing in what you know already. I hope we don't allow the emphasis of our church to, to be known for anything other than the essential priorities of Christianity. That's what I want to be known for. The essential priorities of Christianity. When they look at us, I want, them, I want the world to see and look at us and say that they just keep talking about the Bible all the time. If they just quit doing that, we'd like them better. Don't stop doing that. Bible, 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 Bible. Why? Why? That's the word of God, the revelation of God to the world. There isn't anything else to emphasize. It's just that. Now, if we want to be known for the essential priorities of the Christian faith, how would you describe those essential priorities? I think the Apostle Paul summarizes those essential priorities in this book. He tells them what it is that they know and they need to simply keep growing in. What is it? Well, he actually tells us in one verse. He summarizes it in one verse. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Here's a summary of what is essential to Christianity. That you know and you need to grow in. He's constantly bearing in mind when he's praying for them. And here's the the essentials. Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God, our God and Father. This is fascinating to me. I wonder how many of us, if we were given an exam today, and I could have done that, could have passed out some papers, let's take an exam, let's list for us, just, it would be a fill-in-the-blank exam, not this multiple guest stuff, fill-in-the-blank, what are the essentials? You've got to give us at least three, what are the essentials of Christianity? How many of you would have put faith, love, and hope? Faith, love, and hope. Or would you have come up with something else? The essentials of Christianity. Because here's Paul writing to a well-taught church in an era of opposition. And there's three things that are essential to Christianity. He does not want them to change, but just simply grow more in them. Faith, hope, faith, love, and hope. These three. The work of faith. A true belief in Jesus. The labor of love. True devotion to others. The steadfastness of hope. True confidence in the return of Jesus. That's what he wants them to know and keep growing in. Matter of fact, he actually rehearses these again at the end of the book. It's like bookends to the book. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on, and watch watch him repeat these, the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. There they are, at the beginning of the book, at the end of the book. So what do you think the emphasis is? What's the three essentials? Faith, belief in Christ, love, how you love others, and hope, confidence, steadiness, because of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's fascinating is to watch how the Apostle Paul has actually constructed the whole book of 1 Thessalonians around those three ideas. It's very specific. So how do we grow in what we know? You ready for point one? I know the time. I got it. I'm not going to belabor this. Look, I got all year. We're going to go over this again. I just want to show you. We're just going to taste it, dip in and out. But this book shows us how we grow in what we know. 
about faith, love, and hope. So how do we do that? Point number one. They're long, so that's why it's on the screen. I'll give you time. Gratefully grow in what you genuinely know about faith. Gratefully grow in what you genuinely know about faith. That's a summary, essentially, of the first three chapters. Gratefully grow in what you genuinely know about faith. And I say gratefully because all of chapters 1 through 3 hover around Paul's gratitude. He expresses that gratitude in chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. He says it again in chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. I thank God for that. And in chapter 3, verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which we rejoice before our God on your account? All of the first three chapters is about his gratitude. His gratitude. And there are also three chapters that are focused on his gratitude for their faith. The word faith is used about eight times in the book. And all of them occur in the first three chapters except for one, which happens in chapter 5, verse 8, when he summarizes the three points again. Gratitude for their faith. And it's about what he knows and they know about their faith. It's all about what they know. He's grateful for it. And if you want to grow in it, you need to have a gratitude in what you genuinely know about your faith. Faith is actually the foundation, we could say, for the other two characteristics. If you really want to love the way you need to love other people, it has to be within faith. Otherwise, it's not Christian love. If you really want to have hope and a steadiness of life that's grounded in hope, you have to have a confidence in Jesus. So he knows that they have a true faith. They know they have a true faith. They even know what that true faith looks like. And Paul is deeply grateful for it. It's as if he's wanting them to express their gratitude for that same thing. I wonder if this makes your list of gratitude. Remember we talked about that in prayer if, if you wanted to, to live every day as if you were dependent upon God, do you keep a list of things that you're grateful for because of God? Maybe this would be part on that list is what you've seen in others that expresses faith and what you know about your own life that shows that you have true faith. Now, let me talk about these first three chapters just for a moment. These first three chapters have a very pointed emphasis to them that's distinct from the last two chapters of the book which are actually about love and hope. And throughout these three chapters, it's a back and forth description between what Paul knows about their faith and how they responded when he first preached the gospel to them that shows them they have a true faith. It's back and forth. Here's what Paul did. Here's how they responded. Here's what Paul did. Here's how they responded. So these first three chapters are all about the kind of gratitude that encourages them to keep growing in what they know because of their conversion and what they know from the very gospel life they were exposed to in the person of Paul. Just as an aside, I, I I encourage you regularly to stop and spend a moment thinking in gratitude of what God has done in your life. And think about what he's been doing in the lives of other people in this congregation. And just stop and pause in the midst of all the other things that are going on in our world. And thank him that you actually believe. Thank him that you actually see people around you that have true faith in Jesus Christ. So gratefully grow in what you genuinely know about true faith. Well, there's a couple of themes that are rehearsed here in these chapters that 
summarize this and help us to push it a little bit further. Let me see if I expand on them. Chapter 1 is actually kind of an outline for the rest of the the other two chapters, chapters 2 and 3. But we could sum it up this way. Gratefully grow in the example of faith you have seen. Okay, this is This is important. This is Paul's ministry among them. Remember, I told you it goes back and forth. His ministry and their response. His ministry, their response. So first, gratefully grow in the example of faith that you've seen. I said chapter 1 is kind of an outline. Look at verse 4 and 5. That's where he starts. After talking about faith, love, and hope, he goes into verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. How How do I know God chose you? How do I know? Because I remember my ministry among you. Verse 5, because our gospel did not come to you. He's talking about that Acts 17 time. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You know what we preached, the power of what happened in your midst You were a recipient of that ministry and you know what kind of people we were. He'll rehearse that again in chapter 2, the first 12 verses. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Going back to that Acts 17 moment, his ministry among them. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And listen to this. You know what kind of people we were. Our exhortation, our preaching, does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, or with a pretext for greed. We're not trying to get something out of you. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or for the others, Though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Look at verse 9. You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim the gospel of God. You know what kind of men we were. You are witness, verse 10, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. You know what kind of ministry you saw? You know what kind of example you had? You know what you heard in us? Look at chapter 3. We saw the first five verses. It's all about Paul's ministry with them. When we could not stand it any longer, we thought it best to be left behind. We sent Timothy. We didn't, verse 3, we didn't want anyone to be disturbed by these afflictions because you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. You knew that affliction was coming to us. You know how often it is. If a leader is afflicted, those who follow him begin to question, is it worth following that leader? He's like, listen, I already told you about this. This is coming. This is a part of it. They they go after the leader, and then they come after you. It's going to happen. When we were with you, verse 4, here's our ministry with you. We kept telling you in advance we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. He keeps reminding them. You saw an example of faith, true faith, in what we preached and in how we lived. You saw it. One of the greatest ways to gratefully grow in what you know about the faith is to pay close attention to people of faith. The people around you. Let me just use that as an occasion to say again. Christianity is not Merely a spectator sport. Church is not about sitting in the pews on a Sunday morning and watching. It's about living with each other and living out our faith in connection with each other's lives. If you want to grow in your gratitude, you want to, you want to grow in your faith... You need to rub shoulders with people of faith. You need to see examples of that. You need to be exposed to a ministry that is constantly rooted in biblical faith. And gospel preachers have to be gospel examples. Similar to what we learned in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those mandates for perseverance? 
Remember those who led you and spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Same concept. So, gratefully grow in the example you have seen. Secondly, if you want to grow grow in gratitude in regard to your faith, gratefully grow. Secondly, in the evidence of faith you have demonstrated. Gratefully grow in the evidence of faith that you have demonstrated. So again, back in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, he talks about his ministry among them. But in verse 6, down to verse 10, he pivots to how they responded to that ministry, their life, their response. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example. You demonstrated faith. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In fact, their testimony was so strong that it outran the Apostle Paul. Everywhere he went in Macedonia, he would get to the city and people in the city had already heard about the people in Thessalonica and their conversion. How did that happen? That's what Paul says. You you were demonstrating it. Your response was powerful. He rehearses that again in chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we constantly thank God when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. When we preached, you didn't act like this was a nice speech, was clever, was creative. You listened to us and you said, that is the word of God. We embrace it as if God is speaking to us and the power of that was pervasive. In chapter 3, verse 6, he talks about their response again. When Timothy came back and told Paul about his report and that they were still walking in the faith, verse 7 says, For this reason, brethren, all our distress and affliction, we're comforted about you through your faith because we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Expresses his gratitude. And his constant praying for them because he knows their response is one of true, actual faith. Sometimes in the midst of all of the issues that are going on around us and the circumstances and all the opposition, we we tend to get distracted, don't we? You know what's helpful at times? Stop and remember how you became a Christian. What was your life like then? Do you see the evidence of true faith when you repented? Did you actually respond to God's word as if he was speaking to you? Sometimes it's helpful to go back and remember that. Who you were. What life was like. And that moment when there was a supernatural change. Do you remember that? Unless you haven't yet believed and you have not experienced that. And we would love to talk to you about what faith in Christ can do supernaturally in your life. Learn to cultivate a habit of gratitude for the examples of faith you've had in your life and use that to spur you on in the midst of a culture that is increasingly oppositional to the gospel. And then remind yourself of how you've responded. Be grateful that God opened your eyes to see the gospel and there's evidence of faith in your life. Remember it. It's how you grow in what you know in regard to your faith. Now, let me give you the second emphasis. We'll finish with this and how to grow in what you know. And we're going to speed through this, all right? Yep, we will. We will. Second, intentionally grow in what you accurately know about love and hope. Intentionally grow in what you accurately know about love and hope. I say intentionally because when you come to chapter 4, verse 1, here's where you find the very first commands in the entirety of the book. There are no commands in chapters 1 through 3. All the instructions come in chapters 4 and 5. And when they come, they come rapid and often. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort. So that means be intentional. Do something with this. Act on this. 
Now, the first three chapters are reminders of what they know and should encourage them to keep growing in what they know about examples of faith and faith that was in their own life. But in these last, it's be intentional about love and hope. In fact, the words love and hope do not occur outside of chapter 1, verse 3. And there's one part in chapter 3 at the end that's a little transition. It mentions love. But love and hope come in chapters 4 and 5. That's the emphasis. And he goes back and forth. Back and forth. Just like he did with his example, their response, he goes back and forth between love and hope. Love and hope. So, how do you intentionally grow in what you accurately know about love and hope? Two ways. Let me point these out. One, intentionally grow in a love that labors for the good of others. Intentionally grow in a love that labors for the good of others. We see it in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. You need to grow in a love that labors to protect the purity of the church. You have to protect the purity of the brethren. Do you live to protect the purity of others in our church? That's how you intentionally grow in a love that labors for others. If you're not protecting other people's purity, do you really love them? That's verses 1 to 8. Grow in a love that labors to maintain the testimony of the church. That's chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Grow in a love that labors to maintain the testimony of the church. That's verses 9 through 12. A love that labors to maintain the testimony of the church. In chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, they're called to grow in a love that labors to honor the leaders of the church. Just like they loved Paul, you're to love those who lead you. Verse 12 of chapter 5, we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. And verse 13, you esteem them very highly in love. You grow in a love that labors to honor the leaders of the church. And fourth, you grow in a love that labors to care for the members of the church. That's verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5. Grow in a love that labors to care for the members of the church. Verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. You intentionally grow in a love that labors for the good of others. A second way in which you intentionally grow in what you accurately know about love and hope, focuses on hope. Secondly, intentionally grow in a hope that is steadfast in life's circumstances. Grow in a hope that is steadfast in life's circumstances. Now here's a key. When you read the word hope in the New Testament, it's almost always connected to the return of Jesus. We often don't think about this. The second coming of Christ is what gives you stability now. Your confidence in that return makes you steadfast. So you're like looking at the world of opposition. You're saying, bring it on because I know who's coming. And I know what he's going to do when he gets here. I know where I'm going to be when he gets here. I know what he's going to do to you if you are unbelieving when he gets here. And if you've been picking on his kids, I know what he's going to do to you. This is hope. And you keep thinking about it. So how do you grow in that? Just a couple of thoughts. Grow in a hope that is steadfast toward death. Death, right. What makes you hopeless? Death is the sting that makes most people hopeless. I mean, what is there after death? It almost feels empty, doesn't it? That's why it says in verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died. And he begins to talk about the coming of the Lord. Guess what? If we're still alive, the dead are going to get to see him first. He's going to raise him from the dead. And then we'll all be with the Lord. He's going to raise us up to be with him in the air. And then we're all going to be with the Lord. So you need to comfort and encourage each other with that hope. Secondly, grow in a hope that is steadfast towards opposition. Grow in a hope that is steadfast toward opposition. That's chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. He starts talking about the times and the epochs, talking about the future and the return of the Lord. You don't, you don't need anything to be said to you. You know that the day of the Lord, which is the day of the coming judgment of God, you know it's going to come just like a thief. 
You say, well, what does this have to do with opposition? Well, you know the opposition around you. Remind yourself in regard to that opposition, what kind of people you need to be now in light of the coming judgment of God. Verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night or the darkness. You live now in light of the coming judgment of Jesus on the opposition in the world. You live a certain kind of holy moral life now because Christ is coming. That's hope. Third, grow in a hope that is steadfast toward everything. Everything. In fact... There's a little change between the instructions that come. There's some instructions in verses 12 to 15. There's a little change that happens in verse 16. And I think you could associate all of these with sharp, quick commands connected to hope. Rejoice always. Why? The Lord's coming. Pray without ceasing. Why? The Lord's coming. And everything give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How could you, how could you do that? <laughs> the Lord's coming. Examine everything, verses 19 through 21, or actually verse 22. In fact, there's these rejoice, always pray without ceasing. It's about everything. In everything, give thanks. Examine everything. In everything, in everything, you live as if the Lord's coming. Be intentional. So, that was pretty quick. What is a well-taught church in a culture that's increasingly oppositional to the gospel, need to do. You need to keep growing in what you already know about faith, about loving each other, about trusting and being stable in the coming of the Lord. And that's what we're going to unpack over the weeks to come even further. Let's pray together.